This is an ABC podcast. In the years sort of the 1930s, 1940s, a gradual awareness was developing that there was some kind of snake that was common in the cane fields of North Queensland that was killing large numbers of people living in and around those areas. There was this sense that there were almost this supernatural aspect of the landscape that was appearing and disappearing at will and wreaking havoc and we needed to find some way to to solve that problem using science. Now, obviously, you can't develop an anti-venom without live specimens to extract venom from. And this is where Kevin Budden and many of his friends, this is how they became a part of that hunt for coastal taipans in the late 1940s. Anne Jones with you with Off Track, where this week we mark the 70th anniversary of a young man getting an injury in a front yard in Cairns, which sounds innocuous. But this was anything but. Brendan Murray is an author, and he's going to guide us on this trip into the past. This story of a skinny young man is in Brendan's book, Venom, The Heroic Search for Australia's Deadliest Snake. Kevin Budden, he lived in New South Wales near Sydney and he came from, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say impoverished, but certainly quite a disadvantaged family. But he grew up in and around Sydney, fascinated by reptiles and spent a lot of his free time running around golf courses and marshes and different places where he knew there would be snakes and capturing them for his own personal collection. What he really wanted to do with his friend Neville Goddard was save up enough money to start a reptile park. Kevin Budden was a quite a scrawny young man and in pictures he's very, very slim. He often wears boots and he's got these kind of skinny legs with knobbly knees and has a very boyish appearance. The boots always look far too big, always wearing shorts and, uh, and, and short sleeves. He was very much still a boy, and this is where the naivety comes in, I think. I don't think he ever really fully grasped or appreciated or understood the, the, the true implications of what he was doing and what he stood to lose, that being, of course, his life. And I think one of the most interesting things about the psychology of the snake catcher, and I think often it's a, a psychology that herpetologists themselves don't understand. There's a kind of strange interplay, I think, between fascination, danger, the adrenaline that all combines. And I think what happened to Kevin that day was all a consequence of that. And, and of course, he had this personal and professional and even financial motivation to successfully bag the snake. At that time, there was a huge demand for live specimens of taipan, so an anti-venom could be developed. And institutions like the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories were prepared to pay good money for that. The Taipans have a reputation for extreme aggression and I think that's quite an unfair reputation because they are absolutely cowards first. They will run 
before they attempt to have a confrontation with them. That having been said, they are very large snakes. They can grow up to eight feet long, or in some instances longer. They're highly venomous, and if they are cornered, they will defend themselves with extreme aggression. But they're a very elusive animal. So they're very fast, they're very venomous, they're very nervous snakes, but when they're cornered, there's no question that they are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. Though he was young, Kevin Budden had had a run-in or two with snakes. He'd been bitten by a tiger snake, and what he'd actually done was cut the wound to promote bleeding with a razor blade, because at that time that was the recommended first aid, if you like, for snake bite. We now know that that, that, that's not effective and essentially it just creates more harm to the patient. But he had had the experience of surviving a venomous snake bite before and that in some ways may have emboldened him slightly because he was actually a very passionate believer in what was called at the time, snake fright. So a lot of people believed that people who died from snake bite didn't actually die so much from the venom as they did from the the fear and shock and trauma of what had happened to them. So he was of the belief that the main thing when you were bitten by a snake was actually to stay really, really calm. And I think that, again, highlights to a degree his naivety in regards to the dangers he was actually facing. So we're talking about the late 1940s, so the immediate post-war era. And I think that's also quite significant as well in terms of the decisions that Kevin Budden ultimately made and the sacrifices he ultimately made because he'd grown up in the shadow, if you like, of the Second World War where there was this real expectation that people would take risks for the common good and would be prepared to make great sacrifices for the common good. And and ultimately, uh, for right or wrong, that was what he ended up doing in 1950. The hero of this story, Kevin Budden, was 19 years old in 1950, and his trip to Queensland was his first big adventure. Before that, he'd never even flown on a plane. And along with two of his friends, he had spent weeks searching for taipans near Cohen, to no avail. It was time to come home, and so the group made their way back to Cairns. When they returned from that trip, uh, Kevin Budden made the decision that rather than going back to Sydney with his friends, he would stay in Cairns alone and continue to search for a coastal taipan because he really didn't want to return empty-handed. He had his heart set on achieving this goal, and at that point he continued the journey alone. And anyone who has attempted to catch or interacted with large venomous snakes will know that it's something best done with at least one other person. One of the first things I think that to me is one of the moving aspects of this story is his very close friend Neville Goddard, when he returned to Sydney, got a phone call from Kevin Budden's mother in which she begged Neville Goddard to go back to Cairns to be with Kevin because she was so worried, of course, about her son doing this by himself. And Neville Goddard would probably have gone, 
but he'd actually already accepted a job at that point in the Admiralty Islands, which he was soon to, to fly off and, and leave um, to do that, that job. And I think that the decision he made not to go up and be with Kevin was something that, that haunted him for the rest of his life. So the first thing that he did was persuaded the people at the local museum to let him stay there. Then he made a whole heap of contacts with local cane farmers and he said to them, I'm searching for a taipan to capture for the purpose of anti-venom production. If you know where there might be a taipan, please let me know. And it became very well known around Cairns that there was this young naturalist staying in the museum who was looking for a taipan. And then... One morning, he received a note almost seven years ago and that note informed him that there was a large brown snake that may have been a taipan at the Cairns rubbish dump. Now, that rubbish dump back then is not what we would typically imagine a rubbish dump to be like today. It was more just a kind of wasteland area where all sorts of different things had been dumped. It was a very lonely area, a very isolated area. And early that morning, uh, Kevin Budden set off on foot to the dump with his snake bag, uh, completely alone, in the hope that he'd be able to find this this taipan and capture it there, because still at this point... Um, he hadn't even seen a taipan, so he hadn't got anywhere near catching one yet. And I think it's important to remember too and to put into context that he was, I believe, at a point by then where he was in real desperation. He did not want to go back empty-handed and he'd spent a lot of time and probably a lot of money searching for this animal. He walked out there, arrived and began to search primarily by turning over pieces of junk and at some point in that morning he heard a high-pitched squealing which he identified as a as a rat or mouse probably a marsupial mouse in distress and he traced that very quickly to a large piece of discarded fibro and when he flipped that over he was confronted with an extremely large reddy brown colored snake with its head in a bush rat's nest. It was in the process of actually swallowing that rat. And what Kevin did was he recognised that he had a split second in which to act. With his boot, he stepped on its neck just behind the head. The Taipan immediately regurgitated the rat to free its fangs up so it could defend itself. And in the intervening time, Kevin worked his fingers down behind the snake's head because if you can hold a venomous snake immediately behind the head, of course, it can't turn around and bite you. And he then got an effective grip, stood up. And what happened with this snake was that it managed to wrap itself around him. It wrapped itself around his arm and his body. And we remember that Kevin was not a large man, quite a slender and short guy. And the snake was close to seven feet long. So we can imagine that it would really have got itself entwined around his arms and so on. And th this was the situation he found himself in. 
completely alone and if he had another herpetologist with him of course they could have unwrapped it and they could have worked together to put it in the bag but that option wasn't available to Kevin in that moment. He made the decision that he would walk from the tip to the nearest road which was the Edge Hill Road and when he reached the Edge Hill Road uh, he commenced hitchhiking. So he's holding the snake behind the head, it's wrapped around his body and he's left his snake bag behind because he can't carry that as well. And he's walking on the road hitchhiking while I suppose quite horrified motorists pass seeing this scrawny young man standing out in the in the glaring sunlight of a of a Cairns morning with this huge snake wrapped around him and and, and this at a time when there was great hysteria about taipans in the media um, and it's really i think just a really remarkable image that you almost wouldn't believe except that it's true at this point is where a truck driver named jim harris comes into the story because he saw kevin budden pulled up and actually said to him what's going on and and kevin explained he said look i've captured what i think is a taipan are you able to give me a ride into Cairns to a man named Ernie Stevens' house? Ernie Stevens was a friend of Kevin's in Cairns who was also a naturalist. And Kevin said to, to the truck driver, if you can drive me there, Ernie will be able to help me put the snake into a bag. And Kevin assured the truck driver that he had a good grip. So Jim Harris said, sure, jump in. And uh, they then motored into cans of 1950 to to Ernie Stevens house and uh, that's where things uh, came unstuck. Kevin got out of the truck and Ernie Stevens came out with his wife. Ernie immediately looked at the, the animal and said yes that's a taipan and he asked his wife to go into the house and get a bag, a snake bag which she did and then the task became, right, well, how are these guys going to get the Taipan into the bag? And they were attempting to do this when somehow, and perhaps it was the amount of time that had passed, there could have been some cramping in his hand, Kevin actually lost a grip of the Taipan's head and the Taipan fell onto the grass of Ernie Stevens' yard. Ernie Stevens managed to, to get himself back to safety. And then in what would have been an absolute fraction of a second, because if you've ever seen these animals strike, it's, it's blink of an eye stuff, as much of a cliche as that is. They are so fast. The Taipan struck twice onto Kevin's trouser leg not managing to actually get through to the skin, so it would have expelled quite a bit of its venom into the material of his pants. And then it struck directly upwards and actually managed to get the fleshy part of the palm of Kevin's left hand, the base of the thumb, with a single bite. And it was only then that Kevin managed to grab the snake, put it in the bag and secure the bag. Immediately at that point, uh, Jim Harris, the truck driver, wanted to kill the snake, but Kevin was insistent, and this to me is the, 
really key, most important part of this story. Kevin was insistent that regardless of what happened to him, the snake needed to be looked after. It needed to be transported south to the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories in Melbourne so that an anti-venom program could begin, so that they could start experimenting, start extracting this snake's venom so an anti-venom could be developed. And it was only when Jim Harris agreed to that that Kevin said, all right, fine, let's, let's call an ambulance and get me to the hospital. Yeah, I've heard different interpretations on what was actually going through Kevin's mind at that time, spoken to the people who knew him, John Dwyer being one. And John's interpretation is that Kevin knew he was going to die, but that he put forward this optimism and this bravado anyhow in the face of it. Other people think that, no, Kevin had survived the tiger snake bite. He was a, a firm believer in this idea of snake fright and he believed if he remained calm and level-headed, he could survive. And, in fact, there had been one person who'd survived prior to this occurring and that was an Indigenous man named George Rosendale. So there was that little bit of hope there. Um, and I personally believe that that Kevin thought he had a chance of survival. I don't think he interpreted that bite as spelling out his inevitable doom. The only first aid they applied was a tourniquet, which is tight rope applied uh, further up the limb to restrict the flow of blood. And Kevin had also instructed them not to cut the wound because he correctly had formed the belief that cutting the bites achieved nothing. Then they got him to the hospital in Cairns very, very quickly. He was in a position to get the best care possible. The issue, of course, was that the actual care that they could offer was extremely limited because there was no type and anti-venom. The prescribed treatment at that time was to give people tiger snake anti-venom because there was this belief that, well, perhaps there'll be some kind of cross-protection. And what they would do is they would remove the tourniquet for very brief periods of time and then reapply it. So the thinking there being that the venom that's perhaps at the site of the bite or, or, or even a little bit further up in the arm, rather than introducing it to the system in a large go, is meted, so to speak. They would remove the tourniquet for perhaps 30 seconds, put it back on. An hour later, they would do the same thing. And then gradually, after I think it was three or four hours, they dispensed with the tourniquet completely and monitored his condition. And he became unwell quite quickly with symptoms of neurotoxic envenomation. So slurred speech, difficulty breathing. And it was that difficulty breathing, of course, that was the, the primary concern of the, the physicians that were looking after him then. At that time, the only thing they could really do was to put him in the iron lung. So that's what they eventually did. Unfortunately, early the following morning, and that was on the 28th of July, 1950, he stopped breathing altogether, even in the iron lung. They removed him from the iron lung and, and attempted a range of 
of procedures very, very rapidly in the, in the hope of saving his life, probably knowing it was, it was futile. Um, and indeed, that proved to be the case as it was in the early morning of that day that Kevin passed away as a result of the high pan that had bitten him. It was an extraordinary trauma for the Budden family and that was only exacerbated by the fact that it was fairly shortly after Kevin died that his father passed away and the family believed that, I mean, he was quite a young man, that that was largely the result of the, the trauma of losing his son in, in, in those circumstances as well. But there's another life hanging in the balance in this story. The long taipan in that snake bag who had fatally envenomated Kevin Budden and was far, far away from its home at the Cairns tip. What was her fate? Under really extraordinary circumstances and great media attention, it was secured in a box and flown on a TAA flight down to Melbourne where it ended up in the museum there. There was some concern that people would actually try to steal it. So they put it in a safe, which, uh, as you can well imagine, is the last place that want to be putting any living thing or any animal that sort of needs care. It was milked by a man named David Flay, and he, at great personal risk, was willing to milk that snake after what happened to Kevin Budden. And I think they only managed to milk it a couple of times before it died, and then, of course, once more, they were in a position where, again, they needed more live specimens. But I think what is important in terms of Kevin Budden's Taipan is the, the symbolism of what he did and the, the massive attention that it received across the nation. If Taipans were in everyone's consciousness in Queensland... After Kevin Budden's death, they were really in the public consciousness over the entirety of Australia. And it was that awareness, I think, and that interest and that real compassion for what Kevin Budden had sacrificed that then inspired many other people to go out and try to catch Taipans also so that the anti-venom program could continue. And, and it was ultimately completed in 1955 or late 1955 was when the first human patient was given the antivenom after a type bite. It is in many ways a very dark story, but the reason I think it's important to share it and to talk about it is that very few people know in Australia who Kevin Budden is. He was a young, passionate naturalist, a young scientist who made a huge sacrifice for the good of his fellow Australians. And there is no question that what Kevin Mudden did resulted in lives being saved. And the first life that was saved was a young boy named Bruce Stringer, who actually, he was 10 years old when he was bitten by a taipan, and he grew up to become a doctor himself and then saved, of course, many lives as part of his work as a doctor. So if Kevin hadn't made that sacrifice... Bruce wouldn't have become a doctor and there is therefore this, this real silver lining on what otherwise is it's quite a, a, a tragic tale of, of loss.
and this week is the 70th anniversary of Kevin Budden's death. Brendan Murray was the author of Venom, the heroic search for Australia's deadliest snake, and he also spoke to ABC's Conversations. I'll link that on the Off Track website. So they're very fast, they're very venomous, they're very nervous snakes, but when they're cornered, there's no question that they are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. You've just listened to Off Track, and I am Dr Ann Jones. Meet me in your headphones at the same time next time, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.